Welcome to the airport. It's not that I don't like answering questions. Um, my email is in the back of the brochure. If somebody has a question, please do feel free to send it. The second thing I have to do is, because I work for a national lab, the views of the author presented here do not necessarily reflect PNNL, the Department of Energy, and the talk was developed while I was at the Idaho lab from which I returned about 18 months ago. In the Christian community, um, there's a distinct lack of consensus. Maybe since I started writing this, there is becoming more of a consensus, but over recent years, there's definitely been a lack of consensus. Um, there is the Evangelical Climate Initiative. There's a website for that that was issued in January 06, and that's the climate change document there. There's a group, um, the Cornwall Alliance. If you've not Googled Cornwall Alliance, you will find that they disagree with um, much of what's being said on climate change. Um, to say they're conservative is probably an understatement. Um, there is a Bali UN conference from December that started to look at some things. If you haven't seen this document, there is a G8 Energy Technology Perspectives 2008. It's literally, when you print it out, about yay thick. Um, it is available from OECD. It's an energy plan and scenarios for strategies out to 2050. That was when the various energy, energy secretaries, ministers met in Japan in June. And you've also probably heard from the news, Al Gore came up with his energy plan and he's had his various things around energy. But in the Christian community, the top two are the distinctly Christian ones. There remains this lack of consensus. Um, there are those who simply saying. At one extreme, if God had made a good, has made a good planet, clearly man's not going to be able to screw it up. That's summarizing it. Um, it's going to be a robust planet. And um, there are also those who will say, well, we're in the end times. Let's not worry about it. The rapture's going to solve the problem. And seriously, there are still pastors who will preach that. And then there are those who would argue that, anyway, we've only been around 6,000 years. But enough of that aspect of the theology. I'm going to try and look at it from a systems approach. We have what people want. Um, we want transportation, communication, healthcare, keeping warm, etc. And we've got various sources and we have currencies. So we have a very complicated energy systems. Many people in the energy community will look at one thread of it. They will look at windmills. They will look at solar cells. They don't put all the numbers together. That is our big challenge, putting the numbers together. No one technology is going to solve all the problems. Um, they all have advantages. They all have disadvantages. And solar cells produce as, mount, as much toxic waste in the manufactured as there is volume of nuclear waste on the planet. So everything has some challenges, even apparently clean technologies. Current world energy situations... Um, during these last few days, people have talked about it. A couple of key points here. Two billion people still lack adequate, convenient electricity. Um, we've seen in several places the top couple of pie charts with people saying, we've got coal, we've got natural gas, we've got oil. Um, and since I started thinking about this, we've also had somewhat more expensive oil. And there is now all the discussions around um, when oil peak is going to happen for light, sweet, crude, Many people would say oil peak is happening last year, this year, or next. And um, the heavy crudes are going to get increasingly difficult to pull out. But we have energy resources, and we have a lot of people who don't have energy. We have a common experience. Um, this is not as good a set of pictures as one of our keynote speakers, but 
You've got a little pale blue dot, which if the room was really, really dark, you could probably see. That was the Voyager 1 image from about 4 billion miles out. Carl Sager said we succeeded in taking the picture of the Earth. That's the only home we're ever going to know. And from Buckmaster, we must work together as the crew of the planet if we're going to survive, basically. And our agriculturalist keynote last night emphasized on the night before. Um, so we have a challenge. As far as the Earth is concerned and for as far as practically concerned, it is almost a closed system with a little bit of sunlight arriving and a few um, various meteorites and things, but basically it's a closed system. And the bottom picture is, of course, the Apollo picture, Earthrise, one of the most famous NASA pictures. That reminds us just how finite it really is. Man's role on the Earth. God gave us stewardship to cultivate the garden and guard it. Um, we were also told to fill, subdue the Earth and rule it. Um, there is also this third injunction, unto whoever much is given, of him shall much be required. We have not necessarily been doing very good stewardship. There's an awful lot of us running around in these little packages on wheels and we tend to leave rather a lot of garbage around and we also push a lot of stuff into the air. When there were a million people on the earth, whenever that was, it didn't matter what man did. The sink was sufficiently large. It used to be said, dilution is the solution to all pollution. Mankind can no longer effectively say that because simply there isn't enough of a sink to accommodate our abuses. What are our responsibilities? Man has freedom and we have the role of a steward. Christians are responsible to care for the sick, the poor, the widowed, the orphaned. And it's not just, with all due respect, a saving souls exercise. There is a care injunction. God does not give mankind the freedom to rape and pillage the earth. Mankind as a species is now the dominant species. We are in one sense the top predator and we're killing off an awful lot of species rather fast. It's the, not, the third major mass extinction people have described as. Global issues. This is a picture of beloved clean air a little bit south of Shanghai taken last October on a day when the Asian brown cloud came in. On that day you could not see the top of the skyscrapers in Hong Kong. If you go mad on environmental, I'm sorry, on economic development, you can have some pretty bad impacts. I've already said that, and we've been hearing about energy, economic, environmental education issues, the two billion people without electricity, the two billion people with no clean water, and one and a half billion people living on less than a dollar a day. Yet we have a finite system, we have finite amounts of minerals. If people want a Western standard of living with all their computers and everything else, copper becomes a rare mineral by the end of this century. By mid-century, a number of trace minerals commonly used in your cell phones and blackberries start to become somewhat minimally available. Of the land area, a quarter is forests, a quarter is used for agriculture, and currently we have slash and burn. When the population goes up, somebody takes down more forest. Climate, global change, global warming, we do have uh, pollution issues and we do have destabilization. One could talk for many hours on those and we've been hearing people talk about those during the last couple of days. Looking at energy as a system, and this is a very simplified overview. We have finite minerals, we have finite land area, we have limited fresh water, and the ability of nature to act as a pollution sink, as I've already said, is finite. 
you cannot just throw it into the river the way people used to. You could almost walk across the River Thames in London at one point, and you definitely, when I was growing up, would get a stomach pump if you fell in the Thames before they started trying to clean it up. So the question becomes, what is a sustainable population, a carrying capacity for the Earth, at what standard of living? If we think of the cow, if we have a nice lot of cows on a nice field, Clearly, if you live in, eastern, in Colorado, which is where I was for a while, in eastern Colorado, it's 13 cows to, sorry, 13 acres for a cow-calf unit in dryland farming. Back east, it's more. But there is a finite number, and you go and ask any farmer how many cows he can sustainably have on his pasture, and he will tell you, because he will know. Um, we're not cows, but we can do the same math. So how much area, how much grass, how much water, how much erosion, fertilizer, other constraints. These days, if you're factory farming, it may be odor. But we can apply these, and any farmer, agri any agriculturalist can come up with a number. If we have the right number of cows and the right number of land, we have happy cows and we have a sustainable system. Too many cows, major impacts on the environment. Yes, we will actually have unhappy cows and we will have it not sustainable without off-site resources. And that was again picked up by the agriculturalist last night. We can basically apply the same model to people treating the planet as a system. Our equation was developed in 71. It's not rocket science. You can take an I, an impact number on the environment resulting from consumption... P is a population number, A is a consumption per capita, and T is the technology factor. If you live in fields and you live around in a rural environment, you have one technology factor. If you are like in China's happened, 500 million people have moved from the cities, from the countryside to the cities since the Cultural Revolution. You now have an awful lot more people in the cities. They want to have a light bulb, they want to have a fridge, and they now want a car and 25,000 cars per day new are going onto the roads in China. So we can take these ones, population, consumption, and technology, analogous to our cattle situation, and start to say, where are we, where are we going as a planet, as a closed system? What are the key drivers? Population. We've already heard the number. We're looking like we're going towards 9 billion. We're close to 7 billion, depending, 6.7 at the moment. There's an energy number. There's an economic number which come as part of those impact equations. So I'm going to talk a little bit on this. What is a sustainable planet? If we take the numbers, we do the math, we do the spreadsheet, if we assume 12% of the land for biodiversity, that's something like the Amazon, the number comes out to be between 3 and 4 billion people. We're at 6.7 at the moment using current technology. And there are a number of websites on optimal population. You can Google them and you'll find it. And hopefully you won't use too much electricity as you use the Googling part, as we heard from one of the other speakers. Economic development impact. There are various websites out there. NPR, National Public Radio, has a website for calculating your impact, your carbon footprint, and your resource utilization. If we try and take the current population of the world and we want to give them a reasonable standard of living, not an American standard of living, but a reasonable standard of living, not being hungry, reasonable housing, etc., a Western standard of living. We need three to four times the world's natural resources for minerals, land area, food production capacity. 
We have a problem. We have a finite system with too many people and unless a lot of people are willing to start changing their standard of life, the numbers don't work. Energy use. Major advances are clearly needed in agriculture and energy to meet an optimal population. If we want to eliminate starvation, we want to have a sustainable system. 50% of the global population now lives in cities. That is actually something apparently which happened this year, that magic number. That does mean that we can look more towards agriculture and we can use a smaller fraction of the population um, to go down that route. But we're going to have to stabilize population. Again, that's a theme that's been picked up before. We're going to need new technologies. We're going to need new sustainable technologies for food and energy systems. And somehow we have to eliminate overconsumption by what I'm simply calling the G8, those leading countries, including us. How do we define energy use and talk about a few of these points? Energy use on the current trends may triple within the next 50 years. We have a finite system. We have a challenge. The developing world wants a Western standard of living. There isn't enough to go round. It's going to be what happens in the energy in developing countries is going to be driven, well, what's happening in the planet is driven by developing countries. We are only 5% of the world's population. We use 25% of the resources. It doesn't, the numbers don't work. Efficiency and conservation cannot stop energy consumption growth. Even if the U.S. energy consumption goes flat, as was indicated in one of the other talks, it's the developing countries that are going to be driving where everything goes, as we've all been discovering with the cost of oil. Current projections show significant growth is going to continue. As I've already shown this, this is where the light is. This is where most of it happens. We can blame the people the other side of the Mississippi. Okay, some of you guys are the other side of the Mississippi. And hope, God willing, by the end of the day, I'll be the other side of the Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> but you will see there's literally, very seriously, Africa is the dark continent. It's a very tragic situation there. Um, lots of other places are starting to develop and we're going to have to see where we can go. This situation of us being 5% of the population and using that fraction of energy resource is not sustainable. There's a human development index. We sit up here. Why does Canada have the higher number in terms of electrical utilization? Those of you from north of the border, it's colder up there. We do not need to tell you that. You use more electricity to keep warm. Um, but you've got this cluster of countries at the top. We have China, India, Pakistan. There's an awful lot of people in that part of the planet. And if they simply go from here to here, you take the energy electricity use per capita, the numbers are phenomenal. You take any number and multiply it by 500 million or 2 billion, it becomes a really big number. The last American Nuclear Society conference looking at globally over the next 20 years, they're looking for energy increase for development, not sustainable development, for development of 2,300 gigawatt increase in generating capacity. A large nuclear power plant is typically about a gigawatt. That's an awful lot of new nuclear and other capacity. These are some pictures we took in China last fall. China is building coal plants. We've heard every few days some coal plant is coming online in China. Hydroelectric, the Three Gorges, is going to produce 19 gigawatt. 
That's only about 10% uh, of their national capacity at the moment. The grid is somewhat stretched. They don't have the grid capacity to distribute. They're looking to put 40 gigawatts of nuclear online over the, that period. So energy for development is really going slightly hard and slightly crazy. There is this economic global product where you take a world production in billions of some things, and these happen to be billions of US dollars. Okay, the dollar's not what it used to be, but for a long time, going back to 5000 BC, as far as they can tell, the total global national product, and this is from a University of California Berkeley study, so we may or may not believe it because it's Berkeley, but it's the right trend. The number may not be quite right. Something started to happen 200, 300 years ago. We're going exponentially towards the sky. This is where it becomes unsustainable. Any curve that keeps going up like that, engineers and scientists know, infinity doesn't happen. All right, unless you're a mathematician. Oil issues. World is currently using its current oil production capacity. Again, you, you guys know that from what's happened on the news. <laughs> this is a little old now, um, but it went from 50, 150. Consumption, this is from a very liberal group called the Army Corps of Engineers. That is their best projection as to when oil peak is going to happen. And they're saying basically within 30 years, oil production could be down by 75%. And that's Corps of Engineers. So it is a pretty conservative estimate. The end of cheap fossil oil will end a whole way of life. Okay, it's been happening the world, however, is not running out of energy. It's running out of the sort of energy we've mostly used because we've mostly been running on a hydrocarbon system. And um, the U.S., yes, we're addicted to oil. And you can read the numbers. You can see where we're trying to go. Skip Bowman, Admiral Bowman, who um, runs the Nuclear Energy Institute, he said, actually, we don't have an energy crisis. We have an energy investment crisis. We need trillions of dollars to be invested. The question is, new technology is going to be needed if emissions are going to be controlled, and this IS-92A is a particular scenario saying global population is going to go up and we're going to produce billions of tons of carbon, and by the time you get over here, we're probably six degrees up in terms of climate, uh, temp global temperature rise. There is a gap. If you want to constrain carbon in the atmosphere to 550 ppmv, we saw that we're currently, I thought the number was 377. It's now 387, according to the speaker the other night. Um, it's going to take a long time because the atmosphere and the sea and everything else maintains carbon in a system for a long time. So if we don't do anything, we're going up here by a factor of probably three by the end of the century in terms of carbon into the atmosphere. If we can get smart enough, and that's all engineers and scientists, to produce new technologies. The current technologies will not fill that gap. Um, the other challenge we have is how fast we can bring the new technologies online. People very optimistically were saying, so use solar, use windmills and everything else, use diff, this, that and the other. Our problem is it takes 20 to 30 years to bring a technology into the marketplace and produce enough baseload generating capacity. Can we transition fast enough? And I would argue, without major change and leadership from the Christian community, it isn't going to happen. We do not have a national energy plan. 
We have an Energy Policy Act 05. The U.S. as the global leader does not have a national energy um, plan. Where are we going to go as the U.S.? Best will in the world. This is from our friends at Oak Ridge. Renewables are going to play a part. It could triple by mid-century, but by 2025, it's only going to put about 25 gigawatt onto the grid. The challenge is that's not very much. Looking at where the U.S. energy is going from using for the, from our laptops and everything else, we are going to need something like 135 gigawatt of new generating capacity, ignoring the problem of replacing a lot of plant that's already 40 years old. Coal gasification with electricity, IGCC, um, it looks as though we're going to have 80 gigawatt of coal. It is not going to be clean coal because clean coal with carbon sequestration, the technology is not demonstrated. The first proof of concept isn't going to be online till about 2013 at best, and DOE has just removed some of its funding from it. Nuclear is part of the solution. We may get 25 gigawatt by 2025. We have two choices at the moment to meet our leads. We can either have not-so-clean coal and nuclear, which has its interesting challenges. And potentially we can do life extension for the existing nuclear plants, and that's why I'm heading to North Carolina. We have a challenge between science and religion. I do actually have this as a little card, and when you press the button, interesting lights flash. It's go to Hallmark, and you can find that interesting card. We have a challenge of the image of the engineer. Our first speaker this morning was talking about the image of the engineer. Our friend Dilbert but can we make being a Christian in science and or technology something that is much more acceptable? Many pastors seem to think you want to help society. You become a doctor or a dentist or some social something. Engineers make a difference. We also have to have the best toys, but engineers do actually make a difference. We have to deal with scientific literacy, ignorance, prejudice, the creation science issues. Science is often seen as not being Christian, and there's a real fear of technology. And there's, again, picking up on this morning, there's a failure to recognize the positive contribution of technology to U.S. lifestyle. We would not be here in this room. We would not be using the computers if it wasn't for the contributions of engineers. Being a Christian engineer or a scientist is actually a vocation, and the Christian community needs to start looking at it that way. Global energy future, is a sustainable future possible? I would say yes, because if I didn't believe that, I'd pack up and go and find something else to do. Population is going to grow, all those things happening. Water supply is going to be a challenge. Climate change is going to happen. But how do we as Christians influence up here? And there is actually a solution, a scenario in the G8 report using conventional technology which tells you how we can power the planet. A Christian response. Business as usual in churches and society isn't going to work. The opting out of an end-time theology and assuming that we're in the end days and the rapture is going to save Christians, I would argue, is irresponsible. And in the community we come from, I am the only ASA member. We have a very conservative element within the Christian community there, with all due respect to them, very sincere. But that tends to be a lot of what the view is, even though we're a relatively high-tech community. Mankind must act if the catastrophe is to be avoided. And we've heard several talks pointing out, we are facing a cliff. Are we just going to drive off the cliff, or is something going to change? Christians have a responsibility for global stewardship of God's creation. Science and technology, if properly directed, can make a difference. People used to believe that going to the mission field and being a doctor was, if you were in InterVarsity in England 50 years ago, that was, all, it was almost, why don't 
you, you, the expectation was you would do it because that was where your calling was. We need a similar level of vocation for looking at science and technology. We as members of the science and technology community can start to communicate that. Christians need to engage and provide positive leadership. A solution to the war on carbon, I would argue, and others have argued from the secular side, will solve a plethora of problems. Energy, environment, economic and foreign policy can all be addressed that way. There is a chance for Christian engagement with the planet through care for the poor and education. It will open up a new energy technology mission field. We can, instead of being treated as big, ugly, nasty Americans who are raping and pillaging the planet, we can become the real image of Christ in terms of saving the planet, literally. Because if we don't, we're in trouble. And on the happy point, I'll stop. And yes, we can take a couple of questions before I run off to use some carbon as I go flying across the country. This is self-imposed schedule keeping. Yes. Because the man's going to leave, so <laughs> three minutes of questions. Yes. It was a good talk. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I think often about uh, the uh, disparity in, in uh, resource use uh, and uh, we hear people uh, talking about maintaining our standard of living and we know that there are a lot of people in the rest of the world that would like to have a standard of living like we have and that's that's impossible as you said uh, but it's impossible what, what we need to do as Christians and just anyway but particularly as Christians to think about how we can cut back on our energy consumption and our other resource consumption and uh, provide the opportunity for the rest of the world to have a little more of a share than they're getting. Yep. Uh, you said that, but I just want to reiterate it. Re yep. I, I, I we, we have to show a level of leadership, and the Christian community has to, sh sh I would argue, show leadership in the technology community within the Christian community. How can it be done? That doesn't mean we have to go back and live in caves. We can still have a sustainable lifestyle, which is treating the planet with respect, treating our neighbors with respect, and using a fair share of the resources, and bringing some up. And yes, we need to be prepared to accept that some of our simp uh, activities are going to have to change. Yes? Um, this will be the last we, 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 yeah, right. we, we have to start somewhere. And the, my, my thought has been, that, uh, that I started at my local church. Yep. Like, have you done that? Have, have any of you done that? Have you been thinking about this? Although this kind of presentation, which is so overwhelming, which I agree with, I have, I have really no problem with this. I've known a lot of this stuff. Uh, uh, like, have, have you attempted this at, on, a, on a local church? Have local church? We, we have moved back into the Tri-Cities after being in Idaho. Um, we are... We've now become members of the church that we're attending. It's a Presbyterian church. Um, I've had some conversations with the pastor, and there are several people who are wanting within the Tri-Cities copies of this presentation. It had to be approved by, uh, reviewed by Pacific Northwest National Lab, hence the disclaimer. Um, there are several people in the community who want copies of this and wish to share it. So it's going to be a matter of trying to use this information. I also have a secular version of this, um, which is a lot longer, a full-hour talk, which 
some people um, in the, at the meeting have heard, I'm director-elect for IEEE's Region 6, which is the 12 Western states. Um, we have 60,000 members within IEEE in the 12 Western states. So the energy message from a secular perspective is one that I very much put out through um, and there is actually IEEE initiatives looking at sustainable energy technologies which we're seeking to encourage and trying to get Randy to talk to Lou, who's the president of IEEE, who are very good personal friends, um, to see where ASA and IEEE may be able to do something together. So it's building relationships, building networks, um, and seeing where we can go both through the secular side and through the... Um, Christian community, but it's going to take time, and it needs more than just me. Don't take the recorder to your to the airport. I was already. Thank you, Leonard. Thank you. And as I said, if you've got questions, if you wanted to copy of the slides, they're on that machine. You're welcome to download them or send me an email, and I'm glad to send them to you. At the risk of shameless lecturing, I want to say that I've written a book with that exact purpose in mind, uh, which is educating the local church about technology and ethics, or the <coughs> social and spiritual implications of technology. Turned out to be a little more academic than I thought it was going to be, but that's the purpose. And you can buy them from me or the bookstore. Um, so, Ruth Miller is our next speaker. She's a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at Kansas State University. Been active on the board of, of uh, ASA yeah, for several years. And um, her topic today is how about this? Wind turbines for K-12 education. Let's see if, yeah, whether I need this thing or not, we'll see. Um, this is my little piece for, for uh, the world, um, starting with K-12 education. And I fell into this uh, with the assistance of some people who knew me because I ran solar cars at, at K-State. And I think it's the coolest thing that, that there is to do. So I'm not going to necessarily start quoting scripture or anything, but this is, it very much feels to me like I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do when it was his bringing it, it about that, that did it. So uh, what are we doing? We are uh, encouraging schools to teach and understand renewable energy uh, and by encouraging the children to get that piece of education, hoping that they will go home to their parents and say, Mom, we learned this real cool thing and you should learn it too. Get them excited and get them understanding renewable energy and wind energy in particular. Okay. Uh, there, uh, it was NREL's idea, the National Renewable Energy Lab, uh, which is based in Colorado, has a piece of it that does specifically wind energy, and they were looking at ways to get wind energy to be more accepted in those states where wind is very good. So they